Now, if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of Esther. We're going to conclude our study in Esther tonight. It may seem like a lot. At first, we look at three chapters of Esther. But when you look at chapter 10 being only three verses, and you look at chapter 9 being uh, a bit of just a recitation of uh, laws and decrees uh, and things that are going on, we'll spend the bulk of our time this evening in chapter 8. Next uh, Lord's Day evening, as you know, we will be meeting at 4 p.m. for our building dedication. So, you'll turn to Esther chapter 8. If you please give attention to the reading of God's holy word, it is inerrant, it is authoritative, and it is sufficient. Esther chapter 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. If I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes... Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and in their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple 
And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. May God bless the reading, hearing of his word. We have been on this journey together through the book of Esther. And perhaps you, like me in our study, as we've come across it, have found some, some new and interesting things in Esther. How Esther has gone from maybe someone who appears as a generic Bible hero to being a person who has real fears, real difficulties, struggles, and a real desire in the end to serve the Lord and His people. And what we have seen has been an incredible drama worthy of any great play about how there was a, a great challenge put before Esther and Mordecai in the fact that the Jews had been condemned to death and they were to work to try and overturn an irrevocable decree. And they were to try and to overcome the second most powerful man in the kingdom. We've seen that turnabout happen. We've seen a reversal. And now we are seeing here in these last few chapters the day of salvation that has come to the Jews. It's a, it is a day of salvation that we would normally just associate with physical salvation. That is, they are saved from death. But it is also, I think, a picture of salvation itself. So what I would like us to see is first, life in salvation. Life in salvation. And then secondly, I would like us to see that in salvation also comes judgment. So judgment in salvation. And then finally, we will look at the salvation that is to come. What do I mean by life in salvation? I mean, first, that Esther, Mordecai, and the Jews now are about to experience a salvation which makes them safe, protected, and unharmed. And this is something that concerns all of us. We are in great difficulties when a loved one is ill or is uh, dying. We don't like to see our loved ones in pain or under threat of illness or disability. This is something that causes us great distress. And it would be no less the case here for Esther and Mordecai, especially since this decree of death had been set over all of the Jews. So the first thing that we see, though, is that Esther is experiencing salvation herself. She comes before the king, and she does it in a way in which is also very different. These last few chapters show us how God can take things that seem like they can never be changed and turn them completely on their head for his glory. So here we have Esther, who her entire life perhaps prided herself, or at least we would see that she was a woman of dignity. She was a woman who had reserve, who was respectful. You'll notice the language that she uses over and over with the king, that she says, if it would please the king. And she doesn't want to enter into his presence at a time when it could be dangerous. She has to be convinced to do so. But now here we see her, and she falls before the king. 
it's a great irony that she casts aside any thought of dignity and she throws herself at the feet of the king for love of her people. She's no longer concerned with her own dignity or her own safety, as we've seen that in the past few chapters. She is acting on behalf of her people. And she says, I want you to meet someone, king, husband. I want you to meet my relative, Mordecai. Now, the irony of this should not be lost on you by now. That she says to the king, I am a Jew and I'm related to this most famous Jew here. We are blood relatives. And the king responds in a fashion that I think Esther wouldn't even have dreamt of a few chapters ago. He takes off his signet ring and hands it to Mordecai and says, you are now second in command. You've saved my life. You're the relative of my wonderful. Let me shower my blessing upon you. Now, I want you to remember what we've just said here. and Put your finger in Esther 8 and turn back to Esther chapter 2. And in Esther chapter 2, we see that there was an opportunity for Esther to tell who she was. Look at verse 10. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And from there, the trouble began. That was, from that point on, the next chapter, the decree goes out against the Jews. Esther kept her real substance, her character, silent. She was specifically commanded not to say who her people and who her kindred were. Now, if we look back again at chapter 8, we will see that she pleads with the king and her plea is very specific. She says, how can I bear to see calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? And if you're wondering, yes, they are the exact same words in chapter 2 and in chapter 8. And so we might ask ourselves, what would have happened if Esther would have stood up for her convictions? If she would have not been fearful, if she would have trusted the Lord and said from day one that she was a Jew, Mordecai was her relative. Perhaps Mordecai would have been promoted rather than Haman. Well, some of you have seen or read the famous statement from C.S. Lewis that comes out of the mouth of Aslan when he is asked, well, what would have happened if we did this? And the answer is, we're not to be told what might have happened. That's not what's important. And so that is here. So we can speculate about Esther, but we need to see that God is working in the midst of her life, even with her failures, even with her challenges, to bring about His glory. But we might ask ourselves, are we frozen by fear? Do we not take certain actions simply because we're afraid of the consequences? And then have you ever had the experience where you don't say something for fear of consequences. And then it comes about that you realize you were wrong. There was nothing to be afraid of. This is the challenge that we face as believers. 
It's not dissimilar to what we talked about this morning in Philippians 1.14, how Paul said that they were bold to speak the word. You see, God's people are called to be fearless, not reckless, but fearless, to trust in the Lord and not fear anyone else. Esther has her salvation brought to the light, but also the Jews are about to be saved. Because the only question really that's left in our story is, what will happen to the Jews? We know that Haman is dead. We know that Mordecai is on the king's good side. We know that Esther is going to be safe even though she's a Jew. What will happen to the rest of the Jews? And so Esther continues her request. As we said, she shows no regard for dignity in verse 3. And yet at the same time, she's very respectful. Look at verse 5. If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, please, king, do this for me. Esther's appeal is still to the self-interest of the king. She basically says, if you really love me, you'll do this for me. Now, We might think that that's sort of wheedling or that's uh, manipulation, but really what she's doing is she's appealing to the king's mode of conduct. He doesn't care for moral absolutes. His only concern is what affects him. And what affects him is Esther's happiness. So she appeals right to him. And there's a little bit of irony here in the appeal. She says... If I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king. This word for right is one of the few words that all of you know in Hebrew. The word, kosher. If you would do what is right, what is prescribed. Now, hopefully the irony isn't lost on you of Esther, the just recently announced Jew, telling the pagan king to do something kosher, to do something right. There's an irony here. And you see, she is appealing to a sense of right in the king, but she knows that he does not have a biblical worldview. And sometimes, as we engage others out in the world, we have to understand that. You can't get your boss to treat you properly at work sometimes by quoting Deuteronomy to him. Or by Philippians. That doesn't mean that those principles are not important and shouldn't underlie all of your actions. But we need to make sure that we direct ourselves in a way in which can be understood. Applying biblical truth in all of our actions and in all of our conversations. And so now Esther has come full circle. She is identified with her people. She's asking her pagan king to do what is right. And she gets her request. But the problem is, even in a good deed, we see the character of the king. Look at verse 7. Then the king said, Well, you know, I've given you the house of Haman, and I've hanged him on the gallows, and you're not going to be killed. What else would you care about? You see, he's thinking with his own mind. He thinks Esther views the world the same way he does. It doesn't affect me, so what do I care what happens to anybody else? But that's not the case. And then he says it almost an offhand manner. Well, but you can write something else. I I can't change this law, but you can write another law. Now, think about how ridiculous that is. This is a law 
that supposedly you can't change or break. But it's perfectly acceptable to issue a second, completely contradictory law right aside, right alongside. It makes no sense at all. But it makes sense if we understand the worldview of Ahasuerus. He is someone who has little concern for his subjects. He could really care less what's going to happen. He could care less for law. As long as he is happy and nobody bothers him and life is good for him, whatever. Do you know anybody like that? I'm sure you do, even if you don't know a king. This is the kind of world that not just Esther, but we live in. God calls us to live in a world like this. And we need to understand that and to embrace it and to serve the Lord. It will not help us to complain and wish we lived at the time of the Great Awakening or wish we lived at the time of the Westminster Assembly or wish we lived at the time of the Apostles. The Lord has providentially placed us in this place at this time and we are to serve Him now. This is life and salvation. But then we also see something that I think, if we're honest with ourselves, we're a little bit uncomfortable with. We see that the day of salvation, both here and prefigured to come, is accompanied by necessity with judgment. You see, what happens is the Jews are saved and the way in which they are saved is Mordecai issues an edict and it is an edict that is fierce. It actually rivals Haman's edict. It's nearly identical with some of the persons changed for obvious reasons. He says that the Jews are able to defend themselves against anyone who would attack them. This is not just self-defense. And they can defend themselves and destroy, kill, and annihilate same words as in Esther 3. Any and women and children included. This edict is as parallel to Haman's as is possible. And we sit back and we say to ourselves, what's going on here? Isn't God the God of niceness? Isn't God kind all the time? Why would God be mean to some of these other Persians, or especially their women and their children? When we realize that this is the Lord Himself using the most powerful empire on earth, the Persian Empire, to bring about His covenant promises. You see, He promised to Abraham that anyone that cursed Abraham's seed would be cursed, and that those who attacked him would be attacked. This is God saying that He is zealous and jealous for the defense of His people. And so we as believers in the Lord and His Word need to think of this in the context that God cares so much for you and for me that He is zealous to defend us, protect us, and avenge us. It's very different when God avenges than when we take into our hands vengeance. And so what we see here is a complete reversal of events. Mordecai comes out in royal robes, whereas you recall after Haman had issued his degree, he had sackcloth and ashes on. Susa, as we saw in chapter 3 and verse 15, was confused at Haman's edict. But now it rejoices. The Jews go from a fourfold mourning, fasting, weeping, and wailing 
in chapter 4, verse 3, to light, gladness, joy, and honor. Chapter 8, 16. You see, this is not a coincidence. This is God lifting up His people and reversing their fortune. But I want you to notice something else about this. There's been this grand reversal. But if you were a Jew, if you were Simon the Jew living in Susa, your life would not have changed one bit during this event. Think about it. No one attacked you. That day of reckoning was far off. No one persecuted you. You didn't have anything happen to you. But what did happen? What was different? There was a point in time in which the Jews thought that they were defeated, thought that all was lost, and they went into despair. And now they think and know that they have been redeemed and they have been saved, and now their experience is completely the opposite. They're, they are rejoicing. This is a challenge to us because we face this same difficulty. We rejoice when circumstances are good. And when circumstances are hard or we think will be difficult, we lose hope. We lose trust in the Lord. But you see, God is the same God from beginning to end of this drama. The actual lives of these Jews didn't change. But what does change is the perception of what is out there. It's changed so much, and I saw some of you chuckling, that there are people who try to be Jews now. They pretend to be Jews because they are afraid. But you see, as Christians, we shouldn't be driven by fear. We shouldn't come to church because we're afraid of what others will think about us. We shouldn't have a Bible on our desk because we're afraid what might happen if the pastor stops by. No. We should be driven by the substance of our character because of the renewing work that God has done in us. That is the challenge. And we see here this attack upon those who would attack the Jews is fierce. And we we may wonder, why is it that an edict can go forth, presumably in God's name, to destroy all of these attackers and their women and children? The first thing that we need to realize is that this is a holy war. We're reminded of that several times. Do you notice what happens in chapter 8 with Haman? Do you notice that once again, it hasn't happened in a few chapters, he is referred to as Haman the Agagite. Not once, twice. This is a holy war that predates Saul and David. It goes back to the attack upon Israel as they came out of the Exodus by the Agagites. That is why, if you look in chapter 9, even though the edict said that they could take all of the plunder from those whom were killed, that is why in verse 10, in verse 15, and in verse 16, Not once do they touch the plunder. Do you remember that? Do you remember the attack at Jericho where some of the plunder was taken and God had said, this is holy war, you are not to enrich yourself on it, this is all to be devoted to me? That's what's happening here. It's an extension of that kind of holy war. Israel is acting as the agent of the living God in His righteous judgment. Because you see, God is indeed a fearful God. One commentator puts it this way that I think is very helpful. 
He says, the Lord waits long to be gracious as if he knew not how to smite. But he smites as if he knew not how to pity. This is the God that we serve. He is righteous and just as well as kind and loving. And this is a part of the economy of salvation that's occurring in the Old Testament. And it is not for today. Because you see, today's holy war is by grace. Today's holy war is in which the kingdom of Satan is destroyed. And the powers of the world are destroyed by the Lord converting by grace. By making Saul Paul. That is the destruction of the kingdom of Satan. The grace of God at work. That's the reason why, for example, Christ rebukes James and John when they want to call down fire on a village. The question then comes to you. Do you view your enemies that way? The guy who undercuts you at work. The lady who gossips about you in your neighborhood. The kid down the street that makes fun of your braces or your glasses or the way you walk. Do you view them as someone that the Lord could get a hold of and change them and completely undermine that difficulty, that conflict by His grace? Or do you nurture a seed of bitterness hoping and praying that they'll get theirs? You see, this is what we are called to by the grace of God. Saul, Paul, is always to be preferred to Herod. Well, the final thing I want us to see very briefly is that this is also a picture of the salvation to come because the salvation to come also involves judgment. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we think upon what heaven will be like and being with our Lord Jesus Christ. But we also need to remember that with salvation comes judgment for those who have rejected the gospel, who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. This same Jesus will come riding on a white horse with a blood-stained robe and will execute vengeance. He will be the Messiah of Psalm 2. He will dash the nations like a potter does with a rod. He is a fearful God to those who do not embrace Him. And so this evening, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, the One who loves and nurtures and cares for you, you must come to Him by faith. You must not hope that He will miss you or forget about you or somehow wave over you. The only ones who will be saved will be those who identify with the people of God. The ones who have come by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way out of death and judgment. To trust in the Lord and to identify with His people. Finally, this end of this book reminds us not to be at ease with ourselves in the world. Look with me briefly at chapter 10. Chapter 10 begins, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace 
all the people. Do you notice what happens here in chapter 10, verse 1? Ahasuerus goes back to taxing. You may not recall, but in chapter 2 and verse 18, he declared a tax holiday because of Esther. And now he's back to taxing again. You see, he doesn't really care much for his people. He doesn't have a concern for their well-being or their love. He reimposes these taxes. Praise be to God that the world's king is not our king. That our king loves us, cares for us, is not fickle, is not detached, is not disengaged. And what we wait for is our true king, where we will see the true reversal of all things. Where the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And he who loses his life shall gain it. And he who gives it away shall be given much. This is the God we serve who reverses all the effects of the curse in your life and in mine by the power of Jesus Christ. Let us pray.